Open to 2 Kings uh, chapters 6 through 10. Thus far in the book of 2 Kings, we have seen a handful of different stories and, and episodes. Um, we saw Elijah taken up uh, into heaven in a fiery chariot. We saw Elisha take over his ministry as kind of the main prophet of God in the nation of Israel. We saw two of Ahab's sons on the throne in Israel. Uh, we saw conflict brewing between Moab and, and Israel and soon to come Syria uh, and, and, and Israel. We saw uh, several miracles. Um, the Shunammite woman, uh, the miracle with Naaman, uh, the, the, the Syrian. So a lot, lot of ground in the first five chapters. We're going to jump in in chapter 6 and just uh, try to get all the way through the end of chapter 10, which is the, the, the life and the reign of King Jehu. So we're going to try to cover that this, this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to jump right in. Jump right in and just kind of get caught up in the, the story uh, of, of these, these few chapters. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes as we study your word together. We pray that you would convict us of sin so that we can repent. We pray that you would assure us of your grace so that we can trust in you. We pray that you would teach us and uh, conform us to the image of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. Actually, verses 1 through 7. These guys are cutting down a tree, cutting down trees to build a house. And a guy drops his axe into the Jordan River. And stand-up guy, because he's, uh, you know, he, he ends up saying to Elijah, Oh, that, I was, that was borrowed, it wasn't mine. You might expect him to be like, eh, not mine, I don't care. But he's like, he's, this is a bigger deal. It's like, you know, like if you you know, hit a dent, get a dent in a rental car and you're about, it's like it was borrowed and Elisha throws a stick into the water and the axe head floats and, and they get it. So just another supernatural miracle of Elisha. I think we're up to about 12 uh, at, at this point. Um, starting in verse 8, uh, the army of Syria comes to attack the, the nation of Israel. And they're, they're waiting, they're hiding and kind of waiting in ambush so that when Israel comes upon them, they can jump out and, and kill them all and kind of de- defeat them. So that's the plan for the, for the armies of Syria. But Israel has a secret weapon named Elisha. And so Elisha goes to the king and he's like, hey, here's their plan, right? Like God has revealed to me what they're going to do. So don't go there because they're hiding there. They're going to, they're going to get you. And, um, Basically, the, the, the army of Syria, the king of Syria, sees that Israel has avoided their plan. And he's like, uh, in verse um, 11, he says, um, Will you show me who of us is for the king of Israel? There's a spy. There, there must be someone that's defected in our camp that's telling Israel what's going on. And that's why they are avoiding us. And then his servants say, None, my lord, there is no spy. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. This guy is, he's that good, right? He, he knows, and that, that's why. And he says, all right, well then go and seize Elisha, verse 14. So they sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city where Elisha was, verse 15. Then the servant of the man of God arose early in the morning, and he said, alas, my master, what shall we do? There's all these horses and chariots around the city. It's bad. They're here to kill us. They're here to capture us. And there's two of us and there's a bajillion of them. And Elisha said, verse 16, do not be afraid for those who are with us. Look left and right. There's no one there. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Say, what are you talking about, Elisha? There's two of us. There's a huge army that's surrounded us. They're going to kill us. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and he said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha could see them. The servant could not. All these uh, horses and chariots. Verse 18, then when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike these people with blindness. And he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way. Uh, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. 
Star Wars fans when the guy's like, this is not, these are not the droids you're looking for. And they're like, that's right, this, I'm, I'm not the guy you're looking for, you're going the wrong way. Follow me and I'll show you. And he led them to Samaria, the very place with, with the people that they're trying, like, they don't want to go to Samaria because Samaria is where the, Samari- the, the Israelite army is. So they want, to, they want to ambush them and get them unexpectedly. They don't want to walk up to the camp where they have all of their resources and supplies. Verse 20, as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Okay, Lord, now open the eyes of these men so that they may see. And God opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the middle of Samaria. Verse 21, as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Shall I strike them down? Shall I kill them? Like, they were hiding in wait for us to kill us when we stumbled upon them, but they've stumbled upon us now. Let's go ahead and... Fish in a barrel, man. Let's, let's get these guys. And Elisha answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? No, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So Elisha's like, I know, that you could, I know that they were looking to kill you, and I know that you could easily kill them now, but let, you know, Let's kill them with kindness. Let's, let's, let's show them grace. And, and I suspect that uh, maybe if we do, it'll be a, it, would, it would benefit us to kill them all. But I'm, I'm suspecting it might benefit us more just to be, be gracious to them. Maybe, maybe that will, will win, uh, win them, them over. So they prepared a great feast, and they'd eaten and drunk, and they sent them away to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on, the, uh, on raids to the land of, of Israel. So the, the Syrian army goes home humbled, right? They basically, you know have to admit to themselves and to everyone we got bested right this one guy just made fools of us and so they they back down and the right the 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 beauty of the of the story is that is that like god was there like the the, uh, elisha and his servant and the people of israel were never at risk of being overcome by the the armies of Syria, despite their hiding, despite their ambush, despite their plan, despite all this, right, that God was there with them the the whole time. Elisha's servant might not have seen God's presence there because his eyes had been been blinded to it, but but, uh, Elisha, looking with the eyes of faith, could see God's presence there with them the whole time, protecting them, providing for them, caring for them. Elisha knew full well that the God of the universe was on his side, that the power and resources of the God of the universe were bigger and stronger than the power and resources of his, his enemy. Friends, often in life you're going to feel like you're alone. You're going to feel like God has forgotten about you. You're going to feel like God is not at all concerned with your situation. Just like the the servant of Elisha felt, but the reality is God is with you. God is there for you. He's protecting you. He is providing for you. God is standing between you and your enemies at all times. It's not a matter of if God is doing it. It's a matter of whether we can see that God is doing it. And the way that we can know and trust that that's the reality is the way that we can know that God is standing between us and any given enemy is because God in Christ himself stood between us and our greatest enemy. Sin, death, the wrath of God in hell, right? That was an enemy that was staring us down and Jesus Christ on the cross stood in between us and our enemy in the same way that these chariots and horses of fire stood in between Elisha and his enemies. It's not a matter of if God is there. It's a matter of if we see him by, by looking with the eyes of faith. So the Syrian army heads home, but not for long, because the very next verse, verse 24, they're back at it. Uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So things, he's right back at it, and now things get really bad really quick. Verse 25, there was a great famine as well in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung sold for five shekels of silver. So this is bad. 
Things are not good in Israel. There's a famine. There's a drought. You can't get any food. You can't get any resources. There's an army pressing down on them, cutting off supply lines. They are literally scraping the bottom of the the barrel, right? If you're going to pick any part of any animal that you're going to buy and eat, you probably wouldn't pick a donkey, and you probably wouldn't pick his head. That's gross, right? That's not a valuable thing that you would buy to eat in the store. And what's even less valuable is bird poop, which is, so, so that is literally what is, what is like, that's your options when you go to the store in Israel, is a donkey's head and, and dove's excrement, and it's exorbitant prices. It's, it's you know, massive amounts of money for these worthless uh, items. So things of, like the economy is suffering. The resources are suffering. People are starving to death. Things are as bad as they could possibly get. And we see that in verse 26. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him and said, Help, my lord the king. And the king says, What's your trouble? And she says, Well, this other woman and I had an agreement. Right? She said to me, Give me your son so that we may eat him today, and then tomorrow we will eat my son. So they are resorting to cannibalism. That's how, uh, that's how, that's how little food, and right, they basically have decided, well, either all of us are going to all starve to death, or some of us are going to have to eat other ones of us. And then those ones die, obviously, because they got eaten. But then we at least would, would live for a few more days or, or something with, with a little bit of nourishment. So it's disgusting, and it's terrible, and it kind of shows just the, the absolute, uh, just the, the desperation that they are experiencing in Israel. And then she says, verse 29, So we ate my son, we boiled my son and ate him. The next day I said, give me your son, but she's hidden her son. Right, so... King, help me find her son so that we can kill him and, and eat him as, as cannibals and not starve. And the king hears this and he's just devast- he's, he's deeply saddened and, and discouraged. Right? He says he t- tears his clothes and, and, and he looked and behold, he had sackcloth on his body. He's mourning. And then he says, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The king is disgusted by what he's hearing. He's sickened by the atrocities that are becoming necessary because of the famine and the siege. What he should do is say, things are bad, I need to repent, right? We are worshiping idols because of my, I have led the nation into the worship of idols instead of the worship of God. The buck stops with me. I need to repent. But instead he says, it's Elisha's fault. I want to kill Elisha for what is happening. If you sin against God and experience the painful consequences of your sin against God, that is not an occasion for blame shifting or pointing the finger at other people. That is an occasion for repentance. Right? If you, when you experience suffering, the first response might be to, to point the finger at someone else. But the appropriate response is to persevere and to, not all suffering happens because of sin in our lives, to be sure. But, whether we're suffering or not, we always have sin in our lives that we could be repenting of. And our time is always better spent repenting of our own sin than blaming other people for our suffering. So the king says, kill Elisha. So someone goes to Elisha's house. Elisha's sitting in there. When he gets there, the, Elisha says, "Don't lock, lock the door, don't let him in. He's here to kill me. I don't want him in here. But he gets in anyway. Verse 7. Uh, the, the, um, the messenger says, Hear, or no, Elisha says to him, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow at about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So Elisha predicts to the messenger from the king, who came there to kill him. Right? The king said, Go kill Elisha. And Elisha said, Don't kill me, because things are about to turn around. They're as bad as they can be, worthless 
garbage, bird poop stuff is being sold for thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in the corner market right now. But tomorrow, stuff is going to be in such plentiful supply that, you know, just, just truckloads of actual valuable stuff like flour will be, it'll cost a penny, right? The, the economy is going to uh, explode and we're going to have everything that we need in a 24-hour period, right? Uh, the, the all, like, you know, uh, this is a, an incredible miracle that Elisha is prophesying. And the guy says, verse 2, um, yeah, chapter 7, verse 2. I'm sorry, yeah, that wasn't chapter, that wasn't verse 7, that was chapter 7 a minute ago. Chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Right? What you're saying is not possible. This kind of economic recovery overnight is not possible. If God literally just rained down from his storehouses in heaven all kinds of food and supplies, it wouldn't cause that quick of a, of a turnaround of our country and our economy. And Elisha says, uh, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Right? So it is going to happen, but because you doubted that it was going to happen, you're going to die. Is what Elisha says to this servant. Now, let's look in, in verse 3 and following how this recovery takes place. Now, there are four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Right? They basically say, if we, A, we have leprosy, so we're going to die soon anyway. But B, uh, we're sitting here, we're going to starve to death. If we go to the Syrian camp, they'll probably kill us. But if we stay here, we'll definitely die. So, probably die definitely die. Let's go, let's go to the Syrian camp and see if we can, I don't know, broker some sort of deal or something. And so they go there. Uh, verse 5, they arose at twilight and went to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sounds of chariots and horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us kings from the Hittites and from Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight, and they abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys, and they left their camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. So these four lepers walk into the camp, and they're like, Score! This is amazing! Well, all that, so they eat all the food they can, they drink everything they can, they gather up everything that they can carry, they carry it off home, and they get home with all their stuff, and then verse 9, they say, eh, what we're doing is not right. This, like, we are being a little selfish here. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, let's go to the king. Let's tell the king and his household. And so they came, and they called the gatekeepers of the city, and they said, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and there was no one there. Nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Free stuff. Free food. Let's all go and just take all of the stuff from the camp of the Syrians. Verse 16, when they do. Then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. And so a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel. That's exactly what Elisha said would happen. And two seahs of barley for a shekel, exactly what Elisha said would happen according to the word of the, the Lord. Yesterday at this time, we had nothing. We were buying bird poop for thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Today, we are flush with everything that we could possibly want, so much so that like it's, it costs a penny to get, I mean, you can get anything you want for no money at all. This is a complete and total reversal of fortunes. This is amazing, just like Elisha said. Verse 17, now the king who had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, right? So the guy who came to talk to Elisha, he says, you watch the gate, make sure everything happens in an orderly way. And the people trampled him at the gate and he died. So again, what Elisha said came true. The economy is going to recover, but you're not going to eat of it. You're going to die. He died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. Four lepers stumble upon just the, the, the hidden treasure, the provision of a lifetime that can save the lives of everyone in their city. And what's their first impulse? Let's keep this to ourselves. Let's enjoy it, but let's not tell anyone. So that way there might be more. Like, we're more concerned about our ability to overindulge than we are about uh, our, our countrymen, our, our fellow citizens' ability to survive. 
And then they realize their guilt. They realize that it's wrong to keep this good news to themselves and not share it with others. Friends, we as Christians have not happened upon any spoil or treasure that we've hidden for ourselves or if you refuse to share with others, but we do have something much more valuable. Right? We have the words of eternal life. We were enslaved and held captive by sin and death, just like Israel was in this famine and their siege. And Jesus has come to us. Jesus has died for us. Jesus has taken our sin from us. Jesus has forgiven our sin and paid the penalty that we owed. Jesus has given us new life. He's indwelled us with his Holy Spirit so that we can live with him forever, for all of eternity. We, we have good news, just like the lepers did. And it's not right for us to keep it to ourselves when so many all around us are lost and in desperate need of the knowledge that we have of how they can be made right with God and where they can go to find food and rest for their souls in the Word of God. Let's be like these four men and tell others about the good news of the grace and provision of God that we have found. Chapter 8, the Shunammite woman again. We met her in uh, chapter 5. Uh, no, I'm sorry, chapter 4. Uh, we met, we met the, the Shunammite woman. And uh, apparently, seven years ago, Elisha went to her and said, things are about to get bad. There's going to be a famine. There's going to be a siege. You've got to get out of town. And she does. And now the famine is over, right? Things have recovered in Israel. So she comes back and she goes to the king and she's like, hey, I need my property back. I left town because of the famine, but now I'm back. And the king is, is kind of hearing the story and kind of figuring out how to render a judgment. He talks to Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant, who if you remember, when we last saw him, it was in chapter 5. He had leprosy uh, that he got for not, uh, you know, being honest with God and with, with uh, Elisha. Doesn't appear to have leprosy here, so either he, uh, either it's not told in chronological order, which is certainly possible. A lot of a lot of stories were like that in the in the ancient world, or maybe Gehazi repented of his sin, and and uh, cried out to God for mercy, and God uh, relented and and healed him of his leprosy. I don't know. I mean, he did it with Naaman. Could have done it with with Gehazi. So, either way, uh, the king is talking to Gehazi. He's telling her the whole story about the Shunammite woman, and she's old, and she couldn't have kids, and then Elisha, and then she was able to have kids, and it was a miracle uh, child, and then the child got a headache and died one day, and then Elisha miraculously raised the child back to life, and the king's like, this is an amazing story. Absolutely, go back to, to your land. You can have it back. Chapter 8, verse 7. We meet a guy named Hazael. This is, he's going to be... A mainstay for the next few chapters, he's a bad dude. He's a mean guy. He's violent. He's ruthless. He works for the king of Syria, a guy named Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad gets sick. And so Ben-Hadad says to, uh, to Hazael, go find Elisha and ask him if I'm going to get better. And if I'm not, pay him off. Like, tell him to help me get better. Give him a bro- whatever you got to do so that I can get better. Verse 10, Elisha said to him, Go say this to Ben-Hadad. You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. So wait, is he going to recover or is he going to die? In other words, his, he'll recover from his illness. His illness won't kill him, but you will, Hazael. And you're going to do a bunch of other bad stuff too. Verse 12, I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael, verse 13 says, Who is your ser- What is your servant but a, a dog that I would do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are going to be the king over Syria. Verse 14, then uh, Hazael departed from Elisha and said to his master, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he said, he told me that you would certainly recover. But then the next day he took a bedcloth and he dipped it in water and he spread it over his face until he died. And Hazael became king. So he murders the king of Syria. He waterboards him and then smothers him to death. And now he's the king. So now Hazael is the king of Syria, which is not good news for the people of God because he's a mean, bad king. 
Chapter uh, 8, verse 16 through 24 is the reign of Jehoram uh, as king in Judah. Now, uh, the, so little bit, sometimes these names are a little bit tricky. This is a little bit confusing. So Jehoram and Joram are the same name, just different variants of the same, like Ben and Benjamin. So if you see Joram or Jehoram, realize that the author could be using them interchangeably to refer to the same person. And depending on what translation you use, they might actually be used interchangeably or not. The same is also true for uh, Joash and Jehoash. Same name, just different variants of it. Same thing with Joahaz and Jehoahaz. So, uh, Joram, Jehoram, Joash, Jehoash, Joahaz, Jehoahaz. Same name. If you can kind of see this as the same thing. Here's where it gets even trickier, though. Is even though two names can refer to the same guy... There are two guys named Joram and Jehoram. And they're both referred to with those, both of those different names. So it's like you don't, when you see Joram or Jehoram, you don't know if it's the Joram slash Jehoram that's down in Judah or the Joram slash Jehoram that's up in Israel. And same thing with, uh, jo- with, um, with Joash and Jehoash. There's a king named that in Israel, and there's a king named that in Judah. So it's tricky. You basically have to pay really attention to which country uh, the king is in that we're talking about. Is it Israel or Judah? Samaria, Israel and Samaria, same thing. Uh, Israel or Judah, and you have to pay attention to who his father is, right? Is it the, who's, who is this guy the son of to know exactly which guy you're, you're talking about? So that's just a little disclaimer, a little trivia. But... Um, 16 through 24, Jehoram reigns as king in Judah. Uh, verses 25 to 29, uh, his son Ahaziah uh, takes over and reigns uh, as king in Judah. Which brings us to chapter 9, uh, where we meet Jehu. And Jehu is going to pretty much dominate the, the rest of the story through the end of chapter 10. Jehu is the only, probably the only king in Israel that could maybe be described as kind of good, right? All the kings in the northern region of Israel were almost all bad. They all worshipped idols. They all were bad. They all followed in the footsteps of King Ahab. But Jehu was the one guy who was kind of a mixture of good and bad, and he has a special job, right? So, so uh, verses 1 through 13, he is anointed as king by a servant of, of Elisha. Chapter 9, verse 6, they say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I will anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants and the blood of all of the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut them off. So, Jehu, your job as the king of Israel is to kill anyone and everyone that is related to Ahab, descended from Ahab. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is still alive. She's still, you know, roaming around, just, you know, wreaking havoc. Kill her. Kill them all. They're all bad. Verse 14, then Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. That's the king of Israel. That's Ahab's son. And so he says, I'm going to go kill Ahab's son who's on the throne in Israel right now. Verse 16, he says, let no one slip out of the city and go tell the news in Jezreel. That's where Joram is. That's where the king of Israel is, is in Jezreel. So Jehu says, no one go tell him that I was anointed king. No one go tell him that I'm coming there to kill him because he's going to hide and I want to surprise attack him. I'm going to take this guy out. So verse 17 Jehu is riding up to where Joram is in Jezreel. And multiple times, the people on the watchtower, they're like, someone's coming. I don't know what's going on. They say, great, send a messenger and go find out who it is. And the messenger comes out to Jehu and they're like, do you come in peace? And multiple times, they send a messenger and Jehu basically says, don't worry about it. Shut up. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to talk to you. Uh, you don't go back and report any message back to them. What I'm doing here is my own business. And the guy's watching from the watchtower and he's like, this is not good. Like, we keep sending messenger after messenger, and their job is to go see what this guy's doing and come back and tell us. But as soon as they get to him, they just stop. They, like, they, they don't come back to us. And he's driving recklessly. He's going too fast. Like, something is, something is up. Like, this guy is, like, immobilizing our messengers, and he's, he's driving with a purpose. So we're, something is, is up. And then in verse 21, uh, King Joram is like, 
I'll go talk to him. It's probably Jehu. He's a reckless driver. So I'm going to go talk to, to him. Verse 22, uh, Joram sees Jehu and he says, Jehu, is it peace? Are you, do you come in peace? And Jehu answers, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Not a good start, right? If, you, if there's a guy that you think wants to fight and kill you and you ask him, do you want to fight me and kill me? And he says your mother is, you know, he insults your mother. It's not, he probably wants to fight you. Verse 23, then Joram reigned and fled about, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, treachery, Ahaziah. And Jehu threw his bow with his full strength, and he shot Joram between the shoulders, and the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu has killed Joram, the son of Ahab. All right, it's a good start. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, and he said, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. So take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. If you remember back to 1 Kings 18, uh, Joram's dad Ahab, he's hanging out and he's like, I want to build a vineyard. He's like, I want it right there. Right? It's good lighting. And then they're like, well, you can't. There's a guy named Naboth, and he owns that land. He's like, well, I want it. Tell him I want to buy it. He's not going to sell it. So then Jezebel, Ahab's wicked wife, is like, what's your problem? Kill him. You're a king. Do whatever you want. So she has Naboth killed, and then Ahab makes his little vineyard, and he's all happy. And then uh, Elijah goes to him and is like, not cool. You don't murder people because you want to have a little, you know, vineyard vegetable garden uh, right here in this, this spot in, in the, the kingdom. So because you did that, you're going to die here on this land. Your family's going to be cut off. They're going to be killed. You know, he didn't say it, but eventually by someone named Jehu and Jezebel, you're going to die and you're not going to get buried like a respectful way that someone would die. You're going to die and get eaten by dogs and wild mongrels and animals. So here in 2 Kings 9 is the beginning of the fulfillment of of Elijah's prophecy from 1 Kings 18. We'll see that as a theme running through, right? There's constantly Elijah and Elisha are making prophecies, making promises, and then a few short chapters later, they happen exactly like they said because God is sovereign over all of human history. So, Jehu kills Joram, and then Jehu uh, but, and puts him on Naboth's uh, property. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 27, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Ben-Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him too, right? You're supposed to kill the, people, the, the house of Ahab in Israel. And he's like, eh, better safe than sorry. I'm going to kill the people in Judah too. He's going to wipe everything out here. So he's got, now he's killed Joram, uh, the king of Israel. He's killed uh, Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Now it's time to go get Jezebel. So when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. She's, you know, I don't know why. I mean, uh, some guys think she's maybe, like, she knows she's about to die, so she's like, I'm going to look good for my funeral. Who knows? Puts her, puts her paint in her face, and Jehu entered the gate, and she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, you murderer of my master, in verse 31? Back in 1 Kings 16, there was a guy named Zimri, and that's what he did. He uh, killed the king of Israel, so that he could take over the throne of Israel. And so Jezebel is saying, you're like Zimri. You're a turncoat, wicked, like you killed my son to take over his throne. So he says, are you coming in peace? And, and Jehu doesn't answer her. Instead he says, hey, who up there is on my side? Uh, anyone up there? In, like, I'm going to come up and kill her anyway. So the question is, do I kill her and all of you, or do any of you guys want to go ahead and turn on her now, and maybe I won't kill you with her? And then two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Now, uh, in, the, in royal courts in the ancient world, uh, all, almost all of the attendants in the royal courts were uh, eunuchs. They, they had been castrated so that they you know, wouldn't have to worry about them sexually assaulting the queen or the, the concubines, and also to ensure that if anyone in the royal court got pregnant, they would know that it's the king's son and not someone else. There's no question of paternity. And so these two or three uh, attendants in the royal court, they basically say, yeah, we're on your side. And he says, verse 33, throw her down. 
And they threw her down, and her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled over her. Verse 34, and then they went in and ate and drank. Jezebel is dead. This cursed woman. Let's go out and bury her because she is a king's daughter. Verse 35, but when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than a skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And they came back and they said, this is the word of the Lord by which was spoken by Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say this is Jezebel, right? She dies a bad death, a dishonorable, disrespected, it's a bad ending for a bad woman. So Jehu has killed Joram, the son of, of Ahab. He has killed Ahaziah, the king of Judah. He has killed Jezebel, the mother of the king of Israel. And now in, for, in chapter 10, he just goes off. Now Ahab had 70 sons in all of Samaria, all of Israel. So Jehu wrote letters to all of them, to all of their guardians, all of their elders. And he said, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, that are there with chariots and horses and fortified cities and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons and send him on his father's throne to fight for your master's house. Jehu says, uh, I killed Ahab. I killed his son Joram. Uh, and so now there's 70 other brothers I want you guys to pick the best one that there is, the strongest, biggest, best king, the guy that can be the new kind of representative of the house of Ahab and send him to me. Fight me like a man. Verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid and they said, behold, two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? We don't want any part of this. This guy is a crazy, he's killing everyone. So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, uh, together with the elders and the guardians, they sent to Jehu and they said, We are your servants. We will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. We're not going to pick the best son of Ahab to fight you because we don't think we want to be on your we, We're on your team. Whatever you want, you tell us to do, we're on your team. And then he writes him a letter. He says, all right, if you're on my side, verse 6, if you're on my side and you're ready to, be, to obey me, then take the heads of all of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel at this time tomorrow. Kill all 70 of the sons of Ahab and bring me their heads. Verse 6. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came, they took the king's sons and they slaughtered them, all 70 of them. And they put their heads in baskets and they sent them to Jezreel. And when the messenger came and told him uh, that they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Two piles of heads. Verse 9, then in the morning, he went out and he looked at all the people and he said, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against, against Joram and against Ahab and his house. I did that. I killed Joram. But who killed all, like there's 70 more heads here. Who killed all these people? What he's saying is, it's getting real. Right? This, is, this is really happening. It's not just me, some random dude who got lucky killing. This is, there's seven, there's, things are happening that you're not aware of. A lot of people are killing people here. Right? No, verse 10, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord by which the Lord spoke to the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. This thing is happening. We are going to take down the house of Ahab. Verse 11, so Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men, all his close, close friends, all of his priests, until none of them were left remaining. The body count is climbing. Right? King, king, mother of the king, 70 brother, like brothers of the king, fellow sons of, of Ahab, they're all dead. Now anyone in the entire city of Jezreel that had any remote you know, affiliation with Ahab, they're dead, they're gone. Verse 12, then he set out and went to Samaria. And on the way, uh, when he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Verse 13, Jehu, Jehu met with relatives of Ahaziah of Judah, and he said, who are you? And they said, we're relatives of Ahaziah. We've come to know to visit the royal princes and the queen mother. Say no more. That's all I need to hear. You're dead. Verse 14, take them alive. And then they took them alive, but then killed them. Uh, at the pit of Beth Akkad, 42 persons. So now, again, body count is climbing. 70 brothers, 42 relatives, spared none of them. Then he departed, and he went and he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, uh, coming to meet him. And he greeted him. He said, is your heart true 
uh, as mine is to yours? And he said, yes, it is. He said, if it is, then give me your hand. And he gave him his hand. And he said, come with me. Let me show you my zeal for the Lord. Check this out. Like, watch what I'm about to do. And he had him ride in his chariot, and he went to Samaria, and he struck down anyone who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he wiped all of them out, according to the word of the Lord that had been spoken to Elijah. He's killed Joram. He's killed Ahaziah. He's killed Jezebel. He's killed 70 of Ahab's sons. He's killed anyone who was loyal to Ahab in Jezreel. He's killed 42 relatives of Ahaziah. He's killed anyone loyal to Ahab in all of Israel. Total, massive purge of everything. And now in verse 18, he's going to turn his attention to the, the prophets of Baal and the ministry of Baal. He set out to Samaria. Wait, 18, yeah. Uh, then Jehu assembled all the people and he said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve Ahab much. So call all the prophets of Baal and all his worshipers and all his priests and make sure that no one's missing because I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever's missing shall not live. I don't think he's telling the truth. I think this is, I think this is like, come here, boy, like calling the dog, right? I think something bad is about to happen here. Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. Verse 20, and Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu went throughout all of Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they all entered into the house of Baal and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. And then he said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. Let's do this right. Then he brought the vestments out for them. And then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search, search amongst yourselves and see to it that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, only worshipers of, of Baal. Note to self, right? If there's a homicidal maniac who you think has a motive to kill you and everyone like you, and he rounds you and everyone like you up into a confined space, and then he starts asking, are all of you here? Have we forgotten anyone? Let's make sure you're all here. And then he starts saying, is anyone that's not like you? Make sure they're out. Make sure that only Baal worshipers are in and no Baal worshipers are out. He's probably going to kill you. Right? That's, this is, these are all the warning signs. Like, find an exit. Run. Now, Jehu had 80 men stationed outside, verse 24. And the, the man who allows any, or he says, to the man who allows any of those Baal worshippers to escape, you shall forfeit your life. And as soon as he made an end of the offering, Jehu sent the guard to the officers, and he said, go in and strike them down and let not one man escape. And they put them to the sword. All the prophets of Baal, dead. And the guard and the officers cast them out and went to the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and they burned it. So the idol of Baal is destroyed. Verse 27, they demolished the altar of Baal. They demolished the house of Baal and they made it into a latrine to this day. That's what we think of Baal. We killed his prophets. We destroyed his pillar. We destroyed his temple and we use it as a toilet. Verse 28, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Right? This is a this guy was a dog with a bone. From the moment he got his mission from Elisha's servant to strike down the house of Ahab, he got after it. He went after anyone related to Ahab, anyone related to anyone related to Ahab, anyone that was affiliated, right? Zero, like not remotely, right? He didn't stop until he had purged everyone and everything out of the land. Here's the thing. That is how God wants us to act toward our own sin. Right? God wants us to kill our sin. He wants us to be militant and diligent in killing our own sin by the, the Holy Spirit. Like Jehu didn't want to coexist with Ahab. Jehu didn't want to coexist with the prophets of Baal. Jehu didn't want to allow a small remnant of the prophets of Baal to stay so that they could rebuild. He destroyed the entire house. Every person didn't hold back one bit. Friends, that is the attitude. That's the, the passion and the vigor that we need to have when, when finding and killing sin in our lives. Don't coexist with it. 
Don't nurture it. Don't coddle it. Puritan Jonathan Owen, or John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Selfishness, pride, greed, lust, impatience, entitlement, self-righteousness, right? These things are not looking to coexist with you. These things are seeking to kill you, destroy you, and drag you to hell. So be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Treat, treat your sin with the same level of violence and hostility that Jehu treated the house of, of Ahab. Fight against it, destroy it, kill it. And here's the, here's the strategy for how to go about doing that, right? The, the, how we often seek to go about killing sin is, great, let me focus on that area. Let me stare at this sin and try as hard as I can to, to overcome it. And that's a strategy that's doomed to, to failure. The mortification of sin, according to John Owen, is not to, to look at your sin, focus on your sin, try to overcome your sin, but rather it's to look to the person and work of Jesus, focus on the person and work of Jesus, and then be overwhelmed by, be overcome by who Christ is and what he... Right, Jesus is... Jehu was the king that brought judgment. Jesus is the king who bore our judgment. Jesus as it were, right? If Jehu kind of represents the wrath of God against sin and idolatry, Jesus absorbed that same treatment that, was, that we deserved. And so the strategy to mortify sin is not to stare at my sin, look at my sin, and try harder to overcome it. The strategy to, to mortify sin is to stare at Jesus, the, the, the Savior who came, took your punishment, took your sin, died on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin and stare at Jesus and be overwhelmed by the person and work of Jesus so much that your desire for sin is dwarfed by your desire to glorify Christ. Your affection for sin is expelled by the expulsive power of a new affection, uh, affection for Christ. So mortify sin by looking to Jesus and then fighting against it and, and, and killing it. But don't do it for a moment and don't do it, you know, for, for a, you know, Jehu's problem, we're going to see in verse 29 and following, is that he did that for a, for a time, for a, a, defi- a defined area. But he didn't persist in it and he allowed other, like, as, as violent as he was, and as, as militant as he was with destroying the house of Ahab, he wasn't as violent and as militant with other sins in his life. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. So as ruthless as he was with the house of Ahab and the prophets of Baal, he was soft on and he uh, enabled these other forms of sin in his life and in his nation. And the Lord said to him, verse 30, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and you've done to the house of Ahab everything that I said, your sons will carry on for the fourth generation and sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the way of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins which he made Israel to sin. And so Jehu slept with his fathers and they, they buried him. Right? He struck down the house of Jehab. It's, it's not enough to be zealous in your hatred of and mortification of one particular sin, if you're going to actively indulge in other sins without repentance. That's just trading one sin for another. You know, a lot of people who 
are really, they're exceedingly, they know their Bibles really well, and they're exceedingly careful to guard against the sin of false doctrine. Praise God for that. We should all do that. But a lot of those same guys have a posture of self-righteousness and combativeness and pride about how good their doctrine is. It's just trading one sin for another. Like Jehu. No, a lot of men who would never consider getting a divorce. Right? They think it's an you know, anathema. I never, would never do that. You know, apart from biblical grounds like adultery or abandonment or something like that. And praise God, we should all have that same posture toward divorce apart from biblical grounds. But some of those same men who rightfully hate divorce are harsh with their wives. They're mean. They're rude. They're overbearing. They don't love their wives like Christ loved the church. Just trading one sin for another. Like Jehu. It is good and right and godly to fight against your sin, to hate your sin, and to kill your sin. But make sure as you do that you fight against all of your sin. And not just the sins that you happen to not like or the sins that you happen to judge other people for, right? While you're conveniently ignoring all of these other sins that you uh, want to turn a blind eye to. That's, the, that's following in the footsteps of Jehu, and that's a path that leads to death. So fight against your sin. Kill your sin. But kill all of your sin, not just some of it. Friends, in this life, we are going to suffer. When we do, we need to, like Elisha and his servant, we need to look to God with the eyes of faith, seeing that God and Christ is there with us, caring for us and protecting us. When we suffer, we need to, uh, you know, like, like the, the nation of Israel, as they were persevering through this siege and famine, we need to trust God, trust that he will bring salvation and restoration through the person and work of Jesus. And finally, God is calling us to fight against our sin, to look to Jesus, look to the gospel, and to be militant and diligent in, in killing sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace given to us in the gospel. We thank you that you are here with us all the time, even when we don't see you. We thank you that you intervene for us and intercede for us to save us from our sin and from wrath and from death and from hell. And Lord, we pray that we could respond rightly to the truth of the gospel by fighting against our sin and killing our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.